this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath on july 27th the supreme court pronounced its verdict on a batch of around 200 petitions that had challenged various provisions of the prevention of money laundering act 2002 The judgment titled Vijay Madanlal Chaudhary and others versus Union of India and others has led to grave concerns about further erosion of constitutional protections for personal and civil liberties. The opposition parties have said that they will move a review petition on the verdict and that all the amendments made to the act in 2019 through the money bill route should be nullified. So what are the problematic provisions of the pmla what has been the supreme court's reasoning in upholding those provisions and is this verdict a departure or is it part of a larger trend we explore these questions and more in this episode of the in focus podcast and our guest today is neha singhal a criminal justice expert with the vidhi center for legal policy neha thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me Uh, Neha, the Supreme Court verdict has uh, spent a lot of time dwelling on the grave and terrible nature of money laundering and what a grave crime it is, comp- and even compared it to terrorism. So, can you start by explaining what exactly is money laundering? Because most people, including myself, we have a certain idea of what money laundering is. We associate it with uh, hawala and things like that. But does the definition of money laundering as an offence under the PMLA match? the common sense understanding of what money laundering is or is it something more technical or more complicated i don't know if it's more technical or complicated it's definitely more expansive so i think all of us understand money laundering to be conversion of black money to white where proceeds of any criminal activity are made to look like they are um, that it's a legitimate source of income so a big part of money laundering is the projection of it to be clean money which it has been reversed in the 2019 amendment or not reversed which is no longer the requirement in the 2019 amendment uh, after the 2019 amendment so money laundering as the supreme court has defined it let me stick to the definitions made by the court they have defined it as property derived as a result of criminal activity relating to scheduled offenses scheduled offenses are the predicate offenses depending on which or the proceeds from which money can be or the proceeds of which are considered to be black money so there is a long schedule attached to the to the PMLA which has a list of offenses ranging from the Indian Penal Code um, the Narcotics Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act Immoral Trafficking Prevention Act etc Copyrights Act so um offenses these are predicate offenses once these have been committed the proceeds of crime from such the concealment of these proceeds possession of these proceeds acquisition use etc of these proceeds are all now a part of money laundering it no longer requires to just be projected as untainted property this is what has changed earlier it had to be projected as untainted property it is no longer a requirement so it is definitely far more expansive as an offense than what we understand it to be So what is meant by projection like uh, so earlier the projection was important now projection is no longer important what does it actually mean So what basically section 3 of the money laundering act said that this property whatever the proceeds of this property of this or proceeds of this crime are that it needs to be claimed as untainted property yes claimed or projected as untainted property which basically means that you have committed a criminal offense you have gotten money out of it and now you have used it for certain things you have bought property immovable movable doesn't matter and you are you are now 
projecting this property that you have as clean property, not derived from proceeds of a criminal offense. That's what it was earlier. And an explanation was added in 2019, which no longer requires it to be projected, as in that is now just one aspect of various things that can be done. So concealing of the property, possession of the property, using of the property, any of these things will now be considered as a part of money laundering. So you don't have to claim it to be untainted property, even without you claiming it to be that, it will still be a part of money laundering. Okay, so the opposition is sort of zeroed in on the amendments to the PMLA via the money bill route in 2019. So is this the only amendment which happened in 2019 or are there also other amendments along with this tainted, non-tainted issue? Yes, there are quite a few. There are about eight amendments. Six of those, the other two don't really matter. There's some, as in I will stick to the six of those. Six of those are explanations to existing offences. They've done a very clever thing and the Supreme Court seems to have bought it, is that they have basically explained previous provisions and say because these provisions were unclear and this was leading to some confusion on the ground, they have added explanations. What they have done through these explanations is increase the scope of many offences. They have increased the scope of proceeds of crime. They have increased the scope of what money laundering is. They have given greater power to investigation officers in investigating. It's They have uh, a section 45. Let me tell you what that specifically deals with. Section 45 offenses to be cognizable. They have basically said that from a, they have retrospectively applied this amendment and said that anybody, any designated officer under this act can arrest without a warrant. And they have also said that if a complaint has been made before a special court and a special court is trying an offense, the designated officers can add new people to this offense. At any point of while this, while an investigation, when the, while a trial is going on, new people can continually be added to the to the existing complaint, which basically means that you have an ever-expanding scope of crime, of money laundering, of people who can be charged with such crime, and it can be done without any warrant. People, uh, in, um, investment, uh, sorry, investigation officers can come inside your home and can check whether can arrest you without a warrant, can go through your belongings, all without any warrants, and yeah, the law, the law allows for all of this now. But can't this addition of new people also happen with other crimes? Suppose somebody is investigating a murder and if you find that somebody else has also helped in planning that murder, then they can go and add that person. You'll have to charge them. So in this case, there is no need to charge anybody? No need to charge. This is a very odd thing that this law allows, which is a little confusing to me because it's it's criminal proceedings, but they allow people to be presented before authorities without a charge. And I don't know how that plays out. I don't know what that means. And I don't know how this will be actionable in real life. But the law allows it. Okay. So, uh, one of the offences, you spoke about predicate offences as in some prior offence should have been committed. And from that offence, whatever proceeds, uh, you know, property, money, whatever you've got, that would attract the provisions of the PMLA, right? And one of the offences, uh, you briefly referred to it uh, in the list of scheduled offences, is violations of the Copyright Act 1957. Now, to me, I'm a layperson. I'm no legal expert. On the one hand, the judgment uh, talks about money laundering as an offence being comparable to terrorism, Okay, which is why it needs draconian provisions where you can go pick up anybody, etc. At the same time, it is talking about Copyright Act violations. What does this actually mean? I mean, does this mean that the ED can, in theory, search your house, attach your property, and keep you in jail all for a copyright infringement. Yes, in theory, it definitely means that. So not just Copyright Act. Um, I mentioned um, Immoral Traffic um, Prevention Act also for this reason because soliciting 
which is prostitution, is also mentioned under the schedule. So even for that, a prostitute, uh, theoretically, can be kept uh, by an ED for all of the things that you mentioned. Yes, just for prostitution. By the way the schedule is written, yes, it can be done. Because it doesn't explain, it doesn't tell you what kind of offense within it, it doesn't tell you the magnitude of uh, the money involved, it doesn't tell you anything. So yes, the ED can. So it doesn't, in, it, that doesn't say anything about the magnitude of money involved? I mean, as in what does it mean? Somebody can have uh, this PMLA treatment even for 10,000 rupees or 100 rupees? There is one schedule, there is the PMLA divides the schedule in three parts. So only part B, again, which I will have to now refer to the law again, part B, which has some specific uh, sections. I am not sure which ones, but spe- only some, only one part of the PMLA schedule has to have offenses of money worth over a crore. Everything else doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even 10,000 rupees will attract it. Yes. Okay. So I'm interested in, in the kind of reasoning that has been uh, deployed to sort of justify uh, these wide ranging powers which have been uh, granted to the enforcement directorate and whichever officers who are pursuing such investigations. And one of the things which struck me was that uh, the Supreme Court says that the PMLA is a sui generis legislation and is therefore not comparable to other penal statutes to which traditional constitutional safeguards will apply. Now, why should a sui generis law not be bound by the constitution? Isn't the constitution supposed to be above every single law passed by the parliament, whether it is sui generis or non-sui generis or whatever? Absolutely. This is this seems to be some very strange reasoning that the Supreme Court has applied because uh, PMLA is not the only sui generis legislation that we have. We, uh, we have many, many special acts now in the country. We have NDPS, we have FOXO, we have so many. So, And all of these, of course, they are meant to create a special category of people who are uh, affected by this act, but that's about it. It's still supposed to be covered by the constitutional uh, safeguards. What the Supreme Court seems to have done is found is find some very strange, uh, inexplicable exceptions within the PMLA, which says that which allows for constitutional safeguards to not be uh, applied. For example, a right against self-incrimination is a right that has been granted to an accused. An accused um, has the right to not incriminate himself before court. But the PMLA. It does not make a distinction when it is called before the in, uh, before designated authorities. It does not make a distinction as to who the person the person being called, whether the person is an accused person or whether the person is merely a witness. So the court says that this person could merely be a witness. In case it's a it's a witness, then of course 2023 20, does not apply. It. 20 clause three does not apply to this particular person. If it so happens in the course of investigation, in the course of inquiry, the uh, the ED finds out that this person actually is involved with the crime. Now, this is by the by. This is not the meat of the problem. So if something happens by the by, 20 clause 3 doesn't apply. So they have used some very strange logic to come to these conclusions. But a law being a sui generis law has nothing to do with, does not exempt it, of course, from the constitution. It definitely does not. So what is the purpose of this sui generis thing coming into the verdict? What, what purpose does it serve to say it's a sui generis legislation? I think what purpose it serves for the Supreme Court to have done this is to be, it seems, it's a very long, it seems redundant, really, judgment where they repeat the same thing over and over. It just, it does seem that they wanted to say that the PMLA is constitutional. There is no problem in the law at all. And they have used whatever words, whatever logic, whatever rationale they could come up with to say this, to defend the PMLA. So the sui generis part of it seems to be quite 
unnecessary. They could have said all that they have said without having you invoked those terms. It just seems to be um, a thing that they're saying to make their statement to them at least seem more ironclad. But it doesn't seem to really have any um, logic behind it because all legislations today, we have so many, we have an infil- infiltration of special legislation. Okay, so speaking of uh, a burgeoning number of special legislations, and you mentioned also a little while back about NDPS, uh, do you think the erosion of constitutional safeguards in these various different uh, special laws for the sake of protection from whatever exceptional crime that they offer us, is the erosion of constitutional safeguards becoming normalized over time, do you think? And if yes, what role have these acts like NDPS, etc. played over time in normalizing this? You know, this is a very difficult question to answer. I uh, get this question often and I find it a difficult question to answer. So I'm going to answer it a little cautiously. Um, I think, so Article 22 of the Constitution allows for preventive detention. It allows for the state to detain people without a crime being committed. It's in the Constitution itself. It's it's a part, this part of the Constitution isn't spoken of very much outside the legal community. But since it exists... It is very hard for me to say that or very hard for me to agree that this, the laws that are coming in are an erosion of constitutional safeguards because the constitution itself allows for preventive detention. I don't know how serious it is about its other safeguards. Having said that, many safeguards have been read into Article 21, including right to fair trial, uh, presumption of innocence, etc. But these have become, these definitely have be, are getting eroded over time and quite a bit actually for the strain, for the minorest of offenses, like the scheduled offenses in this act itself, many of them are compoundable offenses. Many of them can be compromised between parties. They don't even have to be tried the whole way through. So these are minor offenses, but the court, but the legislature and the court seem to think it is okay to deny bail, to reverse the burden of proof, to do all of these things for minor offenses because the crime of money laundering itself is so great and the international community frowns upon it. It's the same thing for NDPS. Um, the, the crime of drug trafficking is so great and the international community frowns upon it. So we must have draconian provisions. Same thing is for um, POXO because the crime of sexual offense, uh, offenses against children is so great. We must have this. Same for rape. So this definitely the erosion of presumption of innocence, of bail as a rule, this erosion is definitely happening. I think we have been a little nonchalant about these provisions anyway. At some point in the judgment, the Supreme Court says that, look, this is just an evidentiary standard in any case. This is not a constitutional standard. And um, we must not think of an evidentiary standard as a fossilized rule that cannot be intelligently looked at. So, the Supreme Court is saying that presumption of innocence, which to me has been a bedrock or is a bedrock of criminal justice, to deny somebody of their liberty without giving them due time, giving them time in court, seems to be this. This is a police state we are talking about. This is not a democracy. But the court seems to be very comfortable with it, and the, and the Constituent Assembly at the time of drafting the Constitution also felt that there would be conditions or there would be people who would be so dangerous that you can't provide them constitutional safeguards. You can't provide them things like presumption of so I think we have played fast and loose with these provisions through history of, of independent India. Right. You spoke about Article 22 uh, and how it's this whole uh, thing of preventive detention is already there in the Constitution. But that's not the same as rolling back presumption of innocence, right? I mean, you can you can do preventive detention without holding that person uh, guilty of a crime by default. 
right where does that come from that surely doesn't come from article no, 22 no, it doesn't right? it doesn't come from article 22 i was just i mentioned article 22 to say that the constitution itself allows for detention uh, or for keeping people or depriving people of their liberty without any trial so i am not confident of what the constitution actually provides one so that was just me putting my opinion out there but presumption of innocence as i said is supposed to have been, is supposed to be an evidentiary rule over time it is being seen as not a hard and fast rule that must be applied in every situation it is being most legislative debates that you will find uh, which then uh, where where the laws turn out to have a reversal of burden of proof i seem to think that the offense in question is so grave and the problem you know they keep talking about the sovereignty of the country or the public order or the safety of the country they keep invoking sovereignty and safety of the country to uh, provide for things like reversal of burden of proof or strict bail provisions and this they claim is just an evidentiary standard which can be reversed when the need of the hour is so great and now we find the need of the hour to be great for many things right need of the hour is great okay now coming back to uh, the actual problems with the uh, pmla law which the petitioners have brought to the court can you take us through uh, maybe some of them uh, like how did the supreme court what kind of reasoning did the supreme court follow to say that each of these following aspects are okay like you've spoken about a presumption of innocence and to which of course under pmla the because it's a grave crime the supreme court has given its stamp of uh, approval to reverse it then of course there is uh, bail is the rule and jail is the exception now that has also been reversed now there are supposed to be some twin provisions for bail under pmla like is it very difficult like for anybody to get those things in place so that they can get bail okay so the twin provisions are that the arrested person has to prove that the person is not guilty of money laundering and it has the person has to assure the court that they are not likely to commit any offense while on bail now um the second category that they have to assure the court they'll have to give something in under uh, some undertaking in writing that's fine but to prove that they are not guilty now they have to prove at the stage of asking for bail that they are not guilty of the offense of money laundering now in um, many of these uh, cases the ecir i forget enforcement i think you wouldn't have the full name of it i keep forgetting yeah it is enforcement case information report enforcement case information report this in many cases is not provided to the accused so they actually don't know what they are being accused of at this stage for a person to prove that they are not guilty of an offense is almost impossible to do so um this twin these twin requirements are impossible to meet so on the one hand you're saying by you i mean uh, the verdict is saying that you are guilty unless you are can yeah and on the second at the same time you are saying that you have to prove that you are innocent without knowing what you charged absolutely. with absolutely so they are saying that so the uh, the ecir apparently is an internal document meant for the enforcement directorate for their records the fir is the document that must be made available to the accused now the court has said that of course we will make the fir available to you section 19 of the act also says that we must make it available to you ecir according to them is not mentioned in the law it is an internal document if the ed feels it is necessary to give it to you they'll give it to you if not then anyway it is not your right so this is the argument that they have made and this is the logic that they have gone by now this is this is this is absurd logic now to break down to break down an absurdist position is very difficult to do they've just gone round and round and said the same thing okay now moving on uh, there is one more uh, reversal which is that uh, in, according to common sense you cannot be published for an act uh, which was not 
a crime under the law when you committed it. But if a, if a law comes into being five years later, which says it's a crime, then you can't be punished under that law. Now you can be under this PML. Is it yes, right? Yes. So because they have made again, see this is what this is. They have done this very cleverly. They have added explanations to all of these sections. Um, my reading is that they have done this through section three of the PMLA, where they have made money laundering a continuous offense, where they have said that the act of offense, of course, could have happened at any time. It could have happened twenty years ago. But you might today be continuing to enjoy the benefits of the crimes of the crime that was committed twenty years ago. So the crime or the or the act of money laundering continues till the time you're enjoying the proceeds of the crime, and that could be good. That could go on forever. So currently you are enjoying the proceeds of the crime that happened twenty years ago, and so of course you can be you can be prosecuted for money laundering today. Because it's a continuous offense. Okay, so in other words, just to just so that I understand it properly, I just want to come up with a silly example. Let's say from from today, say from August 2022, it's an offense uh, to honk in front of a hospital, which will be punished by say five years in jail. Okay, now if I honked in front of a hospital five years ago, I can be prosecuted for that offense uh, as per today's law. Or going by this logic, right? No, 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 no. See, what you are saying is that this was a single. Act you committed, and uh, you are now, or by the retro asp- uh, retrospective application of this law, you can be tried. You can be prosecuted today for something that you did five years ago. That's what you are saying, right? Yeah, but this is retrospective application of this law, right? Yes, but if by honking you manage to get, you manage to gather twenty people, and they all gave you a lakh each, and you continue to enjoy that one lakh today because of harassment, yes, then you can be prosecuted today as well. Okay, provided that honking is added to the schedule of offences. Absolutely, because of co- because if the assumption is that any crime that has been any predicate offence that has been committed leads to a gathering of a large amount of income that or large amount of money, now that large amount of money can be enjoyed for generations, depending on the amount that was accumulated. Right, and the next, of course, provision uh, which is problematic is that it reverses the right not to incriminate yourself, which which I think we have already discussed. Now, moving on, one other distinction in the verdict, which is sort of I found interesting, is that the Supreme Court has held that the Enforcement Directorate, acting under the auspices of the PMLA, conducts not investigations but it conducts inquiries, which would then sort of exempt it from the safeguards of the CRPC. Can you just explain how this works? The distinction. You know, it's very interesting because logically, I'm sure as you can tell and as I can tell, there is no distinction between an inquiry and an investigation. Now, this distinction needs to be made for the sake of the ED being allowed to do whatever they wish to do. So the Supreme Court has just said that the enforcement directorate is not a police officer, uh, the, that uh, police officers are uh, specifically by virtue of 451A denied from acting under this law. So these people, by virtue of that, are not police officers. What they're trying to do is they're trying to <laughs> they're trying to find the trail of money of illegal money so they're just conducting an inquiry as to where the money came and where it went so they're just in the pursuit of truth so this pursuit of truth is just an inquiry it is not an investigation they're just seeking truth from you now if in the pursuit of this truth something comes out of it now that's an entirely separate and ancillary matter so therefore all they're doing is inquiring about the where, whereabouts of this money how the trail of it and it is just in the pursuit of truth this is all that the supreme court says this is all this is all this is the extent of the explanation they give and this is they go they don't go beyond it this is illogical 
they have just replaced the word. And in fact, they say this, that though, even though the word investigation is mentioned in the act, investigation under the PMLA actually means inquiry. It is different from investigation under the CRPC because the CRPC investigation is conducted by police officers. But since PMLA denies police officers to enter the scope of the law, of course, this is not an investigation. It is an inquiry. So what are the safeguards of being under investigation under the CRPC or a police investigation, which would be denied to you because you are a subject of a, I don't know, a philosophical expedition in pursuit of truth? The biggest safeguard is right against self-incrimination. That is the biggest safeguard that you have. If a police officer is uh, investigating you, that cannot be taken as evidence to the court. You all that the all that the investigation from the police officer can lead to is the is the evidence, right? Like if I have committed murder and I have hidden a have hidden a murder weapon somewhere, my statement to the police officer will only be used in as much as the murder weapon is found. But my statements to the police officer cannot be produced before the court except to point out contradictions and improvements made in my statement before the court. That's it. That is what my statements before the police officer can do. But here, my statements are used as evidence. And I am bound to tell the truth to the investment uh, to the ED. And if I don't, I can be prosecuted against under Section 63. Okay. Okay. So, with, with all these uh, various powers, which are sort of uh, in complete contravention of the usual CRPC safeguards, uh, would it be an exaggeration to say that the ED can or the state can use the ED to arrest anyone on suspicion? Absolutely. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In fact, in fact, the Supreme Court repeatedly says in this uh, judgment that this is not a penal legislation alone. This is a preventive legislation. They have said this multiple times. So if it is a preventive legislation, which is attempting to prevent this heinous, huge problem, of money laundering, then of course they can they can uh, arrest you on the basis of suspicion alone because the point of the law is to prevent, not just penalize. One final question, uh, a broad-based question uh, since we are running out of time. So during the emergency uh, of 1975 imposed by the Indira Gandhi regime, we had this draconian legislation known as the Maintenance of Internal Security Act or MISA MISA. Does the, does the PMLA have the potential to become another MISA kind of a legislation? I don't know whether the PMLA specifically has the potential to become MISA, but we have so many forms of MISA that already exist in country. So they might use PMLA also to do that. But MISA in its various forms exist. We have the National Security Act, which is very similar to MISA. It's a preventive detention legislation as MISA was. We have about 21 state legislations which specifically provide for preventive detention. In fact, this um, this judgment also refers to them when they're talking about bail in this judgment and say, oh, you know, there are restrictive bail provisions under this law and it's not constitutional. They turn around and say, but look how many state preventive detention laws we have and all of them have provisions like this so what's the problem so we already live in a time where we have we have so we have at the moment we have about 25 preventive det- detention legislations which can do what MISA did so um, we have many laws which allow for this so this attached I, I meant MISA also in terms of uh, the power to attach property seize property and so on not just detention oh yes 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 absolutely it has the potential in that sense of course it has the potential to become another MISA because on mere suspicion the ED can attach a property if the ED feels that you know this property might be disposed of immediately they can they can attach your property immediately and they don't know they suspect that this property is from the proceeds of crime um, attachment is suffi- like uh, suspicion is sufficient for attachment of property so yes of course they can do this on mass right i think we'll wind up now thank you so much uh, neha for sharing your thoughts and comments and analysis of this law uh, we'll have to see how this uh, sort of goes 
on in the coming days and months. Hopefully, we don't know what the opposition is doing. Uh, any final concluding comments you want to make before we wind up? I uh, would. My only concluding comments are that this is an. This is to my mind, this is a horrendous judgment, and it should be challenged. And it has basically. It seems to have bent over. The judges seem to have bent over backwards to. Uh, pretend that PMLA is a constitutional legislation, which I don't think it is at all. And um, uh, yes, it is a, it's a terrible legislation and I think it's a terrible law. Right. On that note, uh, we will wind up. Thank you so much thank for you. joining us and thank you for your time. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.